you could please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's reading is Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One word, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, hello. It's, uh, it's so good to be back. Some of you don't even know who I am, and uh, that's okay. Uh, I've been on vacation a few weeks, and just hearing God's continual work in His church, and just so thankful. I want to say this from the get-go. Thankful for um, all of you, um, all of those of you who are continuing to serve, continuing to care for God's church um, and for His people. And for those of you who are on staff, just thank you so much for your continual work. Um, Mike, Kenny's out on vacation this week, actually, as everybody's kind of sprinkling throughout the summer. And Ryan, just thank you guys so much. Um, it's good to be back. I uh, sat on the beach, read a lot. Um, now many of you hate me at this point. But it was, it was really, really, really good. And, you know, I kept seeing these things pop up on my news feed about all the turmoil going on in the Middle East right now, right? Um, I mean, we can't turn on any news station um, without seeing uh, something about Gaza. Um, on a side note, I remember being in Jerusalem, and uh, there was a very nice uh, Muslim gentleman uh, who had this little uh, like backpack shop. And I said, when we were in Jerusalem, there was actually a lot of planes uh, who were going down to the Gaza Strip, and you heard them flying over you. And it's only really like the distance, um, let's say, from here so it almost feels like from here to Topeka. It's really close. And I remember asking, are you ever scared being here in Jerusalem? And, and hearing these planes go down to Gaza, you yourself being a Muslim, and he goes, ah, that's all the way down to Gaza. And I was like, oh, goodness, okay. Um, but really, when you, turn on the news, when you turn on the news anymore, what do we hear? One of the biggest, one of the biggest problems in our world is religious extremists. You know, how many of us have heard that statement before? Most of us, right? And quite frankly, uh, in most contexts, when I hear that phrase, I have to completely agree. We've heard of, of Christians who go and picket at the, the funerals of dead soldiers. We've heard of uh, terrorists who bomb both Muslims and Christians. We've, we've heard of Islamic suicide bombers who blow up buses. We've heard of the, 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 the cult in Kansas City just this past year that ended in murder. And we hear about these horrible things all in the name of religion. And where do we fit in? You know, are we just the ordinary, run-of-the-mill, average 
religious folks, which I even hate using uh, that, that term. I mean, who does like using that term anyway? But how do we as a church understand some of these extremes that we have around us? Or where do we fit into the mess? Because if we're honest, there are plenty of folks who would then correlate this church with many of the extremes that we see in the world. I've heard it personally. Gabe, your beliefs are too extreme. They're too dangerous. They're too narrow. They're too judgmental. But honestly, I think we as a church, our biggest problem isn't that we're too extreme. I think our biggest problem is that we're not extreme enough. The more I look at who Jesus is and I read the writings of his closest followers, nothing should be more extreme than the church. Nothing should be more extreme than the church. Now, wait just a second. Some of your eyes got as big as baseballs, you know? Why? Because what, what we think about when we hear that is we think now is the time, you know, to take back America, whatever that means. You know, now, now is the time to be louder and more obnoxious with our faith. Now is the time to, to obliterate our enemies. Some of you are thinking, okay, he was on the beach and he got a sunburn and part of his brain got fried, you know? Um, no, is Gabe going to call us, you know, to have this gathering of pickets, you know, or this picketing gathering at the next funeral or to start a militia? No, okay, that's not what I'm saying at all. Just in case, you know, if you're newer and you're like, who is this guy and what on earth is he talking about? That's not what I'm saying. Because really, none of those are extreme. They're awful, of course they are, but they're not really extreme. Check this out. Okay, so dictionary.com, this is the reputable source of all definitions, right? Defines extreme as of a character or kind farthest removed from the ordinary and average. That's extraordinary. That's extreme. And if we look at the world, what's ordinary? What is average? That's arguments. That's pushing against our enemies. That's pushing aside those who disagree with us. That's shouting matches. That's ordinary. And this doesn't just happen in religion. I mean, look at where politics are in the state of our nation. They're more polarized than they've ever been, with each party pointing the finger at who's at fault, each coming with their own agendas to benefit themselves and their constituents. But even if we look at the history over the past 100 years, more than 141 million people were murdered in the name of secularism. The anti-religious viewpoint under people like Lenin, Stalin, Mao, Hitler, and others. Look, it's not a competition, but that's a lot more than religion, okay? And I hate to say it, whether religious or irreligious, hate is the norm. It's ordinary, not extreme. Even though we all long for peace and unity, destruction and division are what's most common in our world. Think about it. What's the one thing in the Miss America pageant, that every contestant has to say is their ultimate wish if they ever hope to be elected. World peace, right? Yeah, look at you, you're even saying it. But you know what? It's going to take something more extreme than nice smiles and baton tricks to bring it out, right? So hear me say it again. I don't think we're too extreme. I think we're not extreme enough. And nothing should be more extreme than the church. Nothing runs counter to all the ordinary and average like the church. Oh, of course we've messed up. I mean, come on. It would be ridiculous not to admit that. And of course we're going to fumble it more in the future. But that doesn't change the fact that our world needs more extreme groups if, in fact, their extremes line up with Jesus's, mind you. Um, Many of you know we can find crazy people on our streets and in our neighborhoods 
But are we crazy about the right things? I'm convinced the world needs the church because quite frankly, I know I need the church. You need the church the way God has designed her to be. And that's why it matters what comes to our mind when we think about the church. This summer, we've been asking the question, why and how does our beliefs actually matter in everyday life, right? Um, these beliefs, they're, they're not just nice ideas, pie in the sky, but they're very earthy. They're actually very urban, practical truths that change the way we live our lives. And so we've been looking at some of these core beliefs, like who is God? Um, what, what do we believe about the Bible? Who is Jesus? What has he done? Who is the Holy Spirit? These are huge questions. And today we're zeroing in on what do we believe about the church and why does that matter? What do we believe about the church and why does that matter? And if I haven't said it enough already, nothing should be more extreme than the church, especially the local church. Now, I know some of you, oh, well, I hear affirmation. I interpret that as affirmation. Um, <laughs> that was awesome. Even there was lightning like coming through the skylights. It was like, whoa, nothing should be more extreme than the local church, not even lightning. Now, I know some of you are here this morning and, you know, a friend invited you potentially, maybe a spouse dragged you, uh, but you're here regardless. And, and you think the church is at worst a place for people with overactive consciences, uh, or maybe at best it's a place that are for people who are really bad off to finally have a crutch to stand on and then walk back out into normal society. Others of you are here, but you've never thought about what the church could be outside of a Sunday morning gathering or some really nice programs, and you're content to sit relaxed on the sidelines. And then there are some of you here this morning, you're sold out for the church. You really do believe that the church needs to be more extremely in line with Jesus. You long to live like this, not for yourself, but for our city, for our world, for the glory of God, because it's really one of the best things in the world that could happen. Wherever you find yourself this morning, Jesus and his closest disciples want us to know that there is nothing, there should be nothing more extreme than the local church. And this morning, we're going to see that in three facets, okay? It's extremely a called people, a selfless people, and a unified people. It is an extremely called people, selfless people, and unified people. Now, if I could give you one sentence on the church, okay, get here, here. If I could give you one sentence on the church, it would be Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. <laughs> Wait, a sentence, Gabe, this is more than one sentence. Uh, what are you talking about? Well, in the original language, our passage this morning is one big sentence. I mean, 72 words big. I know it's a little unfair, but I thought it'd be worth a try. It got you. Um, so also, look at who wrote this long sentence, if you're new to the church or Christianity, um, you'll love this guy because Paul hated Christians. <laughs> Paul actually hated them so much that he wanted to put them in jail. And, and I bet you know some Christians you wish could, you could have arrested. But that was Paul, and then he became a Christian. How interesting is that? And he actually got so deep into the movement that when he's writing this letter to the church in Ephesus... He's ha he has chains on his hands, and he finds himself in prison. That's a bit ironic for a man who was so antagonistic to this movement. And the person this movement is centered upon now finds him in the exact position he hoped every other Christian would be. Now, Paul, he's writing to a church he'd started a while back in the city of Ephesus. And actually, in the first century, 
The city of Ephesus was the fourth largest urban center in the world. This was a pretty major metropolitan area. So we can relate. I mean, Kansas City isn't the fourth largest city in the world, but we are an urban center, and we're connecting with urban people in the first century. And this church, it had this radical beginning when it first encountered the good news of Jesus. If you look um, and, and listen to the historian, uh, Luke, in, the, uh, in Acts chapter 19, verse 19, listen to this beginning. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. This church started with a book burning. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty radical. Uh, I'm not recommending we do that. But I'm just saying, this is a pretty radical crew. And, and even in these early years, God is doing something amazing and extreme in this community, but it doesn't always stay a nice bed of roses. Actually, when we, when we come to the book of Ephesus, or this letter written to the church in Ephesus, it's actually a bit messy. People from different cultural backgrounds... They start to clash, and the normal, ordinary divisions start to pop up. The church in Ephesus, like so many today, um, they forgot what it means to be the church. So Paul, he picks up in chapter 4, verse 1, if you've got your Bibles with you, by reminding everyone listening that the church is first and foremost an extremely called people. If you're using one of the community Bibles, our passage is on page 634. And Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What we see right off the bat is that the church is not a self-selecting group. It's a called people. Earlier in Paul's letter, he makes it very clear that God is the one who does the calling. Could you imagine, you know, I was thinking about this, sitting around the dinner table and God shows up on your caller ID. <laughs> I don't even know if you would have like a picture on there or something like that. You know, it'd be the cross. I don't know. But it would pop up and, Ugh, you know, you drop it instantly. Now, obviously, that's not what he's trying to communicate here is caller ID. But what is certainly going on is that God isn't a God who created the world and then washes his hands of the world. He's a God who gets his hands dirty in the brokenness of hearts. He calls, he seeks, he pursues his people. I always find that to be such a comforting thought. Because if that's the case, then God is one. He's the one who started this whole thing. The church was his idea. The church, it's too simple, quite frankly, to be crafted by really smart philosophers. And it's too complex to be imagined by poets. And here's the kicker. We've been called together. Together. Look, I'm a big proponent. I love doing this, actually. Sitting in a coffee shop, opening my Bible, maybe turning on Spotify. Um, and reading some scripture. Um, but don't call that church. That's not church. How do we know? Well, besides the fact that every time one of the New Testament writers is speaking to the church, it's when they're gathered together in a very beautiful way to hear God's word proclaimed. It's, it's aesthetically pleasing to sit in a coffee shop and read scripture, but it's not the church when you're doing it by yourself. I mean, there would have been no way for them to ever hear God speak into their community if they were by themselves bashing the church and hanging out in Starbucks all day. But one word, I want to say, says this all. It really unpacks what the church is. And it's actually the Greek word for the church, ekklesia. 
I grew up in the church, and maybe some of you did too, hearing this nice little Christian jingle. Um, here's the church. Here's the steeple. You know, open the doors, see all the people. You know, which was so cute. You know, as a kid, it looks, it's dreadfully cute. And you get a bunch of kids, and they're all doing it. The only problem is it's very theologically inaccurate. Um, you know, <laughs> but some of the best theolog- theological inaccuracies come in really cute packages. But so, see, here's the thing. The church isn't a building it's called out ones. That's the definition. That's the explanation of ecclesia, called out ones. I know it ruins the cuteness of the song, but there you have it. In other words, the church, it's not a building and it's certainly not a steeple. We don't have one, um, thankfully, but a community of people called together for a purpose. What's that purpose that unites the church? Well, if you look in Matthew's account of Jesus, There's this situation where Jesus is hanging out with those who are closest to him, his disciples. And he asks them, hey, who do you say that I am? People have all these other answers, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, right out the gate, says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you did not come up with this by yourself. This is the spirit of God revealing it in you. And upon this rock, this groundbreaking truth, I'm going to build my church, my ecclesia, my called out ones. You know, in the letter uh, to the church in Ephesus here that we have, Paul says pretty much the same thing. He says it in his own way. But in chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, he paints a picture of the church like a living temple with Jesus as the critical stone, the first stone that gives shape to the whole structure. Listen with me. Chapter 2 of Ephesians, verses 19 and 21. So then you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The picture isn't just of a nice pillar. Jesus the rock, you the stone. But it's a holy temple, a whole structure. We've been called together around and centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we've been called together to proclaim the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is our purpose. This is good news. And this purpose, it's bigger than you. It's bigger than me individually. It's bigger than your own personal aspirations, your professional goals, your exercise plans, your race, your socioeconomic status, your stage of life. When you place Jesus at the center, you join a movement of people all across the world, all throughout time, who are called together to participate now in God's work of redemption and restoration of a broken world. Together, together. And this has been happening for over 2,000 years with God leading every step of the way. So I want to ask us a question this morning. Each one of us need to ask this question of ourselves. Is my purpose bigger than me? Is your purpose bigger than you? Bigger than your 80, 90, 100 years, potentially? If you haven't already, um, if you aren't ready, actually, to define yourself as a Christian, I do think this is still a good question for you. What's your purpose for living? Where do you get your basis for your purpose? Do you know where your life is taking you? And is it a compelling 
purpose. No matter where you find yourself with Christ this morning, that's an important question to think about, be honest about, and to wrestle through. But church, if you are a Christian, do you recognize God's call on your life? Is your life defined by a purpose bigger than you, bigger than your bank account, bigger than that next job promotion, bigger than your progeny, your children, bigger than your relational status? If it is, then that's really an extreme way to live. It's different than the rest of this world is proclaiming, where it says, you got to fight to get yours, right? you got to push, tear down the ladder to get up the ladder. God calls us in a very extreme way, rather than to fight to get ours, to die to proclaim his. This is the center of the church. This is our new purpose. Listen, if he hasn't called us, then the church is nothing. We wouldn't be extreme. We would just be nuts and normal. Just be nuts and normal. Now, the reason Paul starts with calling, he actually has a logical progression here in our passage. He starts with calling because if God has never called us to this larger-than-life purpose, centered on his living son, Jesus Christ, then there is no hope for what he says next, this next extreme. You see, at its most extreme, the church is called to be extremely selfless, extremely selfless. Please look at me again at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love. This purpose, it takes on everyday practice and everyday life. Um, We're freed. So many times people say, we have to live into this calling. Actually, we're freed to live in this new life, this restored life as God has designed us to live. And Paul spells this out by giving us four characteristics of what it means to live out as a selfless community, okay? First, if Jesus is the center of the church, if Jesus is the center of church, then no one or nothing else can be, neither you nor me. And that's really obvious, like Captain Obvious here, right? But it's very difficult to live. And quite frankly, we don't live that way. That's why it's so hard for so many people to find a church that fits me. Because all of a sudden now, I have become the center of my characteristic on choosing a church rather than being faithful in a community that serves and glorifies God. We're called to renounce self-centeredness and be a humble people, which has always been difficult, but especially in the first century, there's something interesting here. In our culture, it's kind of cool to be humble, or at least be perceived as humble, like we celebrate that in our culture. Not so in the first century. There was actually a gentleman by the name of um, Epictetus, a Stoic philosopher in the first century, and check this, he listed this trait as first among qualities not to be commended. Like, don't be humble, that's the worst thing in the world. And here Paul says, be humble. (laughs) This is a critical component of your calling. But even so, what is humility anyway? Um, Many times we fall into the error of thinking uh, that humility is self-deprecation, especially in conversation. We fall into trap that that thinking less of ourselves is really, really good. Um, But this isn't humility. There's a different word for that. It's called pity. And to be full of pity actually is very self-centered because now in our conversations, we always talk about us, but we talk about the worst parts of us. (laughs) 
You know, oh yeah, well you think you're the worst in that. You should have seen me yesterday. And then it's all about me again, but now it's just about how terrible I am, which makes the conversation, quite frankly, even worse. Um, That does not build community. That's like, oh, it's time to go. I have a TV show to watch. I don't want to listen to you anymore. Um, But C.S. Lewis, he's been so helpful for me and my understanding. He's a great 20th century theologian, and he captures this characteristic of true humility well in his turn of phrase where he says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. We've been called to have a transformed concentration on someone other, specifically Jesus Christ. Jesus is the center of the church rather than the me of the church. Look what I've done. Look where I've been. Look what Jesus is doing. Look what, where Jesus has been. Look where Jesus is bringing us. He is now the sole focus, the center of our community and the church. And that's why also as selfless people are secondly characterized by gentleness. Now, before you go off thinking that this means handling everything with kids' gloves, um, it's critical we understand what gentleness means because we have a lot of cultural baggage here, I think, with this term gentleness. Yes, Gentleness means to, re, re, uh, to renounce harshness and violence. But we shouldn't confuse gentleness with timidity or weakness. That's not gentleness. In Matthew's account, actually, of gentle Jesus, the same Jesus who is crucified and while being crucified forgives those who are crucifying him, we also fi- find him angry enough to turn over tables in the temple. Gentle Jesus. So what is going on? with gentleness that characterizes our Lord and Savior and therefore should characterize the church. Well, Aristotle actually helps us understand what this word originally meant. He's an ancient Greek philosopher and he describes the concept of gentleness as this way, a state between excessive anger against everyone and on all occasions and never being angry with anything. (laughs) Those are the two extremes. He goes on to say in his Magna Moralia, praise is not for him who is deficient in anger, nor for him who is therein excessive, but for one whose state is between the two. This man is gentle. And gentleness will be a mean state, not nasty, but median, between these two affections. And help us understand even more so, the the word for gentleness was commonly used when talking about training animals. So when you trained a dog in gentleness, he would growl at his master's enemies and lick the face of his friends. This is gentleness. So the real question when we come to gentleness is who's training you? Who's training you? What guides your anger? What guides your compassion? Is it your passions, your pride, your ego? Or is it Jesus Christ, the person and work and purposes of our Lord and Savior? Now think again to this church in Ephesus and how critical this was. I mean, they just had a book burning. Things are getting crazy. And they're a diverse church. They've got folks from a Jewish background, folks from a Gentile background, and the diversity there in the Gentile background. You have singles, you have marrieds, you have uh, children and parents, you have blue-collar togas and white-collar togas. I mean, you could imagine there were quite a few times when cultural boundaries were crossed and disagreements were breaking out. And to be gentle... It doesn't mean you would never confront someone or even get angry, but it meant you had the, con- the courage to confront someone when something needed confronting. 
And you did it so openly in a right way about the right things, and the right things were defined by Jesus. He's the center on how gentleness is now defined, where anger without sin is appropriate, and also how to go about it with compassion. When wronged in the church, we don't respond now with passive aggressiveness. We're really good at that one. And then we don't ever call that sin. We just say, oh, I didn't, I didn't see you in the supermarket. You know, you walk by and you don't, you don't notice them. You know, you turn your head the other way. You intentionally ignore. That's a bit of passive aggression. And it especially doesn't mean active aggression. But instead, you address the situation honestly and care for the other person. That's gentleness. Driven by humility centered on Christ. And this doesn't mean things get resolved quickly either, right? We know this in relationships. You can have one conversation, two conversations, 20 conversations, and which is why patience is the next thing he mentions here as a key characteristic of selfless people. Patience has the idea of being slow to anger, slow to anger. You know, I think patience can be summed up this way. It's cautious endurance that does not abandon hope. Cautious endurance that doesn't abandon hope. I have, I, I love to garden. Um, I live in the city and we have our patio and we've got my little herb garden. That's how I do my green thumb uh, downtown. And I have, uh, alongside of my herbs, I have peppers because I love spicy things. And uh, we have these uh, green bell peppers that aren't too spicy but very tasty. And I bought them when they were green and healthy and I planted them in my little box. Um, but they didn't have any peppers on them yet. So I noticed, okay, how much sunshine do we have this day? How much water do they need? And so I would water them, pay attention to make sure they're getting enough of all the important resources. And I did this for weeks and months. And then finally I got a bud with a flower and then a pepper. I had to watch. I had to be very intentional. I had to be engaged. I had to wait. And I couldn't abandon hope that this healthy plant will one day produce fruit. One day. We can't come expecting immediate results in relationships either. Somehow we think sometimes when we come to the church that the first time I walk into the door, I'm going to find my best friend. And then I find that people are just as annoying as I am. <laughs> you know? uh, but but, but this, is the, this is the beauty that, and the promise that we have in the church, that if the Spirit of God dwells in them, that means God's working in him or her. And God always finishes what he starts. He always finishes what he starts. So that when these arguments, these disagreements, when these annoyances do pop up because we're people, you can rest assured that the same God who brought us together is refining us together. He's not done with them yet, and he's not done with you yet either. And when he brings us together, he refines us and makes us into a patient people. So lastly in our list as we wait, like brothers and sisters, there are going to be times that pop up when we're going to just have to put up with each other. <laughs> that doesn't sound very churchy, does it? Like, oh, Gabe, that sounds actually very low bar. Um, but this bearing with each other that Paul talks about is a way of saying, even when we can't agree, even when our personalities are like oil and water, you're called to tolerate each other. When things are at their worst, we don't run away. We hold on to each other. That's church. Not that everybody's standing, we're all in agreement all the time, everything's hunky-doey, hunky-doey, hunky that's weird. Yeah, that would be really weird, hunky-doey. Um, 
but that things, when they are messy, we hold on to each other. We bear with one another no matter what comes. That's church. But what sets this toleration apart from what I think is a very unoriginal idea of coexist that we see on bumper stickers all across these cars is that it's textured with a common definition of gospel love. Bearing with one another in love. Where do we get our understanding of love? It's centered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Love isn't merely a feeling that comes and goes. It's a choice that mirrors that God became human and died a death we deserve to die so that we might be reunited with him. He goes the extra mile, seeking our highest good for us. And when God calls us together, he calls us to stop being consumed with my agenda, my timetable, my glory, my self-centeredness, and recenters our focus on his agenda, his timetable, his glory. You know, the first time I was reading through this this past week, and I was thinking about it, I could almost hear some of you asking the same question I was asking. It seems like, it seems pretty extreme. <laughs> kind of comes back to that theme, right? Uh, I mean, of course we value when other people are humble. We love it when other people are gentle with us and patient with us and when they put up with us. But if you actually start trying to do that for others, when you're on the bus, when you're at work, gathered in the church, in your home, you come to see that this isn't just a little extreme. It's a lot extreme, and it almost feels impossible. And it is unless you've answered God's call on your life to have Jesus the center of your life as your Lord and Savior. And even still, it isn't easy, but it's possible. It's possible. So let me ask us all a question, another question. Does your practice match your purpose? Does your practice match your purpose? Does your conduct line up with your calling is another way of asking that. If you're not a Christian, I want you to know this part isn't for you because we don't share the same purpose. But if you do claim to have answered God's call as a follower of Jesus, when you come on Sunday, do you put your desires to the back seat or do they drive you? When service opportunities are raised, what's your primary concern? How it serves you, how it inconveniences you, or how you can be able to be available for others? Do you come so that your needs are met or so that you might help meet the needs of others? To merely feel loved or also to give, be initial and initiatory in giving love to others, your glory or God's glory? We've all been called to an extreme purpose that has extreme practice. A practice our world desperately needs, quite frankly. And if God isn't working, if he isn't transforming us, then the church is nothing more than a special interest group that isn't that special. A lot of people are trying to do this. But what sets us apart is our purpose centered in the living and risen Jesus Christ. So after we see God's call on the church to be a selfless people, centered on this extreme purpose, on the living Son of God, Jesus Christ, then it allows us to make sense on what he's talking about here at the end. That lastly, the church at its core is an extremely unified people. Some of you are already coming with skepticism, with good, good regard because of the way things are in our world. Look with me in chapter 4, verse 3, and we're going to go through verse 6 again. Eager, eager to maintain 
the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. One of the greatest errors we can have when in our understanding of the church is that we can think that we're the ones who created the unity in the church. Now, to be sure, we're the ones who create disunity. <laughs> I am a proponent in that at times. But what Paul wants us to say or see is that he wants us to be eager. Another way of saying that is make every effort available to you to maintain the unity of the Spirit, which begs the question as to where it all started. Where did all this unity start? The church was the first place where people from so many different backgrounds gathered together on purpose for worship, to live life together, and to love one another. And it's now not only survived, but actually thrived for 2,000 years. How? Because this unity is not founded in us. This is key. When God calls us, he calls us into his unity that he has ordered and centered in the person of Jesus and communicated by the Spirit. Look at the oneness that defines God and then therefore defines his people here in verse 4. There is one body. Each local church is a representation of the one universal church throughout the world and throughout history. There is one spirit. If you're a follower of Jesus, the same Holy Spirit dwells in each and every one of us. You are called to the one hope. If you're following Jesus, we have the same promised good end ahead of us. If we, we have one Lord, Jesus Christ isn't yours exclusively. He's our shared Lord in Christ. You have one faith. Christianity is nothing if it's not a shared faith. One baptism. When you come to follow Jesus, you are immersed into Christ and into his body as it's represented in water baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You don't get more oneness than that. And if you've responded to God's call to repent and believe in Jesus, this oneness, this unity is yours. It's yours. The unity of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit is now yours through Jesus. So when it comes to maintaining what God has already started and invited us into, this is a key phrase. What doesn't bring us together won't hold us together. What doesn't and didn't bring us together won't hold us together. Let me explain uh, the way this oneness works in the church. It's kind of like a wheel, okay? Um, In this wheel, we are the spokes. So you've got your wheel and you've got your spokes. And Jesus is the hub. So many times when we get into Christian community, we think that we need to actually maintain unity by chasing one another. And so like the spokes, we just keep going in frustrating circles, never getting that closeness, that intimacy we so long for because we're chasing after others as the the ultimate end. But in the church, Jesus is the hub. And if we would see Jesus as our chief end, and we pursued him, naturally that intimacy and that closeness comes about because we're seeking after Christ. And now that patience, that love, that gentleness, that humility, that bearing with one another is possible 
when Christ is at the center. And we don't have to be frustrated chasing after one another in closeness if we would pursue Christ with every effort we have. And the Spirit will continue to saturate and build up His church in unity. Meaning as soon as we put anything else in that hub, whether it be our own ambitions, our own hobby horses, that's when church splits happen. That's when we hear the tra- traumatizing stories in the news, you know, of a deacon shooting a guy with a crossbow. And you go, whoa, what's going on? Uh, that is crazy. Um, but hear me. Who brought us together is the only one who can hold us together. Who brought us together is the only one who can hold us together. So let me ask each and every one of us this morning, do you want a community that's diverse and also unified? That doesn't mean uniformed, but it means unified. Diverse from cultural backgrounds. Do you want a community of people that fight for one another rather than with one another? Do you want to be a part of people who have the courage to confront in broken situations, but the care to not do it harshly? Do you want a community where people aren't always talking about themselves, but wanting to listen to each other? Where questions about faith are actually welcomed and encouraged, but we join together in pursuing truth at all costs. A group where commitment to you isn't based upon what you've done or who you are, but because of what God has done. This is only possible in the church when we remember who holds us together. When Jesus is pushed out of the hub, when he's pushed out of the center, the wheel breaks down and we crash and burn. So do you focus on who holds us together or on what tears us apart? Do you focus on who holds us together or what tears us apart? And don't answer that quickly because our natural knee-jerk reaction is to say, of course, that's why I'm here. But think about it. Do you realize that you have more in common with the believers that are sitting next to you and the believers you have in your life than you do with anyone else in the whole world. That's beautiful. And it's all based on Jesus and what God the Father has done through his Son and now communicated through his Spirit in us. If he hasn't unified us, then the church is nothing but another social experiment on the verge of failing. But if he did, then nothing, nothing, and stop her from proclaiming the hope of the world. And it's to that end, I believe, there are at least two practical next steps for us, okay? Two things each and every one of us need to walk away with. First, I want to ask you to pray this week. Um, pray daily for this church, which may take a lot of work for some of us, um, depending on where we are in our discipline of prayer. But pray for this local church that we would listen to God's word here that we would be extreme in our calling, that we would be extreme in our selflessness, that we would be extreme in our unity in maintaining what God has already established, that we would be pursuing the one who has called us, living out the extreme practice that he has given us, and now maintain that unity by focusing on Jesus. So first, pray. Please pray. Secondly, I want to ask you to come to the baptism service on Saturday, August 16th. I don't know what you got on your calendar, Um, when someone has decided to answer God's call in their life, we celebrate together as a statement that we are now immersed in Christ and now immersed into his body. It is a beautiful picture we celebrate together. This is huge. It's monumental. It's a symbol 
that we aren't called to be the pillar with Jesus as the rock and us the stone, but called to be a holy temple where God resides. And if you're a follower of Jesus and you've never been baptized as a symbol of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, you're missing out. We're missing out, quite frankly. We want to celebrate that with you. Baptism is a great picture, once again, that it's just not you and Jesus. Let us celebrate with you. And it's such an integral part of your calling. It may feel weird. Most of us don't take baths in public, okay? And it may feel extreme. But it's such a beautiful moment for the church. And if you have any questions about that, I'd love to talk with you to assuage any sort of fears that you might have. So two simple steps. Pray, and will you join us for the baptism? Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come as a church thankful. Thankful that you've called us here this morning. That you're the initiator, that you pursue, that you seek, that you love, that you haven't given up on this broken world. And not only that, but you've given us a community that actually works where so many other communities are fragmenting and falling apart, when you've called us to Christ, you've called us together to a community that actually flourishes if we keep Christ at the center. So may that be true for us. May each and every one of us take ownership in our walk with Christ and pursuing Christ as a way of also building up your church and maintaining, keeping the unity that is in the Spirit. God, guide us today. May we throw off the shackles of self-centeredness, throw off the shackles of impatience and harshness or even timidity, and may you embolden us, empower us to be the extreme community you've called us to be, to glorify you for the good of our city and the good of our world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.